0: We're continuing in our series, "A Fresh Glimpse of Jesus." I want to talk a little today about covert and overt actions. There are several ways to become aware of what kind of person a an individual is. Two are by observing their covert acts, and their overt acts. Covert acts are difficult to assess. The reason being, they're covert; they're hidden. Nobody sees them. However, when they become known, they can speak volumes about an individual's character or about a person's resolve. For instance, when the Bush and uh, Obama administration decided it was time to try to take out Osama bin Laden, they didn't advertise in the papers. There was a lot of planning that went into it in, in the case of both administrations. There were opportunities missed, and finally the opportunity taken, and nobody knew much about what was going on. Why? It was a covert action. Covert means to hide, to keep out of the, out of the range of uh, discovery. Overt actions are much easier to deal with. They're easily seen. They're generally and easily interpreted. This summer we've been taking a look at the, getting a fresh glimpse of Jesus. Well, it's not summer yet, I guess, but we think it'll come. And we're taking a look at it by looking at several compilations of his overt acts in the Gospel of John. There are some compelling reasons for us to be doing this. One is the fact that even in quote-unquote Christian America, there are those who've never taken a look at them. Some never at all, and others never seriously. And even for those who have and have responded favorably, there's a constant need to look again. We really can't get enough of Jesus. We need to look at Him again and again and again and again. And every time we look, we get a new view. I've been a Christian and working with Christian people for a long time now. And I understand that it's impossible, it is possible to bear the name of Christ without bearing the earmarks of Christ. So we need to look at Jesus' overt actions. I've been a Christian and dealt with my own humanity long enough to know that this is true. If we don't focus on who He is, and often, we may bear His name, but we may not bear His lifestyle. So today we take a look. And Particularly, we're looking at the overt actions, three of them, in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Through, through uh, what overt acts may we see Christ? Well, let's try this one on for size. We can see Christ through the sign He gave. It's wedding day for somebody. It's an everyday incident. It shows Jesus to be involved in everyday life. And involved he was. He was in Cana of Galilee for a wedding. Family was there. Friends were there. Mary, his mother, was there. She probably, as I'm told, lived in Cana now. It's interesting. There's nothing in in here mentioned about his father. But we presume that had he been alive, he would have been there too. Some say that perhaps he was dead by this time. But the inference of John 6.42 says otherwise. Let me read it for you. Is not, this Jesus the son of, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, present tense, suggests that Joseph was still around? We do know this, even though we don't know a lot about marriage ceremonies in that day, it was a very festive occasion. It followed betrothal, which is more serious than our engagement. In fact, if you broke a betrothal, it took a divorce action to break it. We do know that the ceremony, if it was for a virgin, was on a Wednesday, and if it was for a widow, it was on a Thursday, and often the wedding ceremony would be at night. And here's the way it broke down. There would be a torchlight procession by the bridegroom and his friends through the village or through the city, wherever it might be, to the home of the groom the, of the bride. And when they got there, speeches and expressions of goodwill would be exchanged, and they would uh, have a banquet, and they'd have a wedding ceremony, it was a festive occasion. In this particular case, it was also a desperate occasion. Not because it was a wedding. You've heard the old line, I've used it before. Most guys marry fellows like their fathers. That's the reason most mothers cry at the wedding. Should I try that again? (laughs) Where are anybody out there? What? Oh, well, in this day and age, (laughs) I'm not here. You're here, I'm not here. Is there any way we can clean this up before we put it on the internet? I want you to look at verse 1, 2, and 3. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. This is what made it a desperate situation, not the the fact that the girl was marrying a guy like her father. Forget that. I'll never tell that joke again. (laughs) The rabbis said that this, uh, well, let me quote them. There is no rejoicing save with wine. It showed the place it played at, uh, at weddings as well, I guess. Now that doesn't mean drunkenness, because drunkenness was prohibited. The wine was watered down. It was three parts water, one part wine. But the idea was if there was no wine, it was a social insult. In fact, it could actually make the bridegroom's family liable to a lawsuit for failure to provide adequate, an adequate wedding gift. So the scene serves to tell us something about his relationships. He established a new dimension among his, uh, in, uh, within his relation, uh, the sphere of his relationships on this day. Notice, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And his response is, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Now Mary knew that Jesus was Messiah. How could she not? Her knowledge is shown, among other things, in her requests. She had confidence in his compassion and in his ability. And it could be that she's trying to get him to go public. She's trying to provoke him a little bit. We're not sure. But it's Jesus' response which seems startling at first to us. Woman, he calls her. It sounds so cold, but it really wasn't. Actually, if you look at John chapter 19, um, this is what he calls her when he's commending her to John the Beloved Woman, here's your son. He calls other women by the same term the Samaritan woman at the well, the woman who had been caught in adultery, the woman he healed on the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene at his, at his, uh, at his tomb, the Canaanite woman whose daughter he raised from the dead. It was common for Jesus to call a woman. Woman, and it wasn't a cold, heartless term at all. But it does signify something in this particular case. Rather than calling Mary mother, it signals a new relationship between them. He calls her woman. It puts a little distance between them. Jesus is no longer home in Nazareth. He's 30 years old. He's starting his public ministry. He now no longer is known primarily as Mary's son, but he's now becoming known as the son of man and there's a difference. It was an understood dimension on Mary's part. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I don't know whether this is the way this should be read or not, but I get the impression this is a little bit um, comic relief maybe. He says to her very seriously, woman, why do you involve me? My time has come. She looks at the servant and says, do whatever he says. She has confidence that he's going to do the right thing. And then the really remarkable happens. And it tells us of his ability to give and use signs. He did it through effecting this phenomenal miracle, turning water into wine. But let's look at the the things that it, it leaves beyond doubt. First of all, it leaves beyond doubt this. Jesus' willingness to respond compassionately. His mother said, do whatever he tells you. And what did, he, what did he say? Fill the jars, verse 7, fill the jars with water so they fill them to the brim. It shows his ability to respond compassionately. He springs into action. It shows his power over nature, the, the miracle itself. He told them, now draw some out and take it, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet the wa- tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize that where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the miracle itself is an indication that Jesus is able to do something beyond all manner of doubt. Then verse 10, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. It shows Jesus' ability to work convincingly. He did it with effective results beyond the miracle itself. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed His glory and His disciples put their faith in Him. It's an incredible statement. The result of a need for wine was a miracle. The result of the miracle was something else again. You know what the wonderful thing is about this? The wonderful thing about this, about Jesus' miracles, is not that they're awesome, and they are. It's not that they are impossible to explain, and they are. It's not that they're even demonstrations of divine power, and they are. But it's this. They point to something beyond themselves. They show us God at work. Notice the phrase. He manifested His glory. He revealed His glory. Now I don't know about you, but There are some words that don't particularly resonate with me when I read the Bible, and one of them is the word glory. What does it mean, the glory? Well, let's try some synonyms for it. How about his grandeur? How about his grandness, his greatness, his majesty, his splendor? Jesus made known who he was. His grandeur, his majesty, his splendor. And Cana is a clear evidence of it. Look at John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. It's an incredible picture. Jesus, God in the flesh, manifests in this life and actions the very nature of God. A very helpful thing to do, especially with those with a heart for knowing God. Now this isn't a hard thing for Jesus to do, as John establishes. Jesus and God the Father are the, are the same essence. But there's another result of springing, the, the uh, result springing from this miracle as well. His disciples believed in Him. You notice it in the text. Let me find my text again. I've lost it momentarily here. Verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana of of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, they obviously believed him, or they wouldn't have begun to follow him. But this is another step of commitment on their part. Uh, One commentator says his disciples fixed their faith in Jesus. So, do you want to see Jesus? Look at his overt acts. You want to know how to respond to Him? We should behold His glory and know what we're seeing. The grandeur of God, the majesty of God, in action on behalf of men and women who are needy but loved by Him. We see it in the miracles He does today, from healing people physically and emotionally to changing lives. You want to know how to respond to Him? take a good look at His grandeur. Believe in Him, as did the disciples, so also should we fix our faith in Him. Now you may think this speaks only to those in need of a commitment to make, but look again, it speaks to all of us. Those of us who are already following. It's a misnomer in evangelicalism that once you've come to faith, you've come and it's over and, we've, and you've arrived. That's true in a sense, But it's not over. It's just begun. We'll consistently be learning more about what it means to follow and believe. So the challenge is to all, unbelievers and mature believers as well, to believe, to fix our faith in Christ. Think about what he did. Think about how it changed the wedding. Think about how it changed those who witnessed it. Think about how it changed his disciples. Think about how it can change us. We're talking... The glory of God here we're talking the grandeur the majesty the incredible difference there is in Jesus as compared to all others who walk this earth because he was and is God in the flesh so we can see him through the sign he gives we can also see him through the scourging he initiates What comes next is an extreme incident, and it tells us of Jesus' action in light of bad behavior. His action showed some great resolve. Look at verse 14 and 15. "...in the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. The situation is this. People had to travel long distances to get to the temple to make their sacrifices. And some decided rather than bring their animals with them, they would purchase animals on site. Then they wouldn't have to force the animals to travel long distances. It was a convenience. They were not unlike us. They would have loved our malls. This was convenient, so it seemed a reasonable thing to do. Likewise, when money making, when when making monetary offerings in the temple, they had to be made in the approved currency. So the money changes were close at hand. In fact, let's have them sit here, this part of the temple. It was convenient. The problem wasn't their desire to be accommodating. It was their infringing upon the temple precincts in order to do it. It was a sacrilege and Jesus cited it for what it was. So he acted with great resolution, with great power and it wasn't so much physical power that we need to see. What we need to see here is Jesus' moral power. In fact, let me quote one commentator. It was surely the blazing anger of the selfless Christ rather than the weapon which he carried which really cleared the temple of its noisy, motley throng." His explanation shows great sensitivity. Look at verse 16. To those who sold the doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? He's sensitive to the place in which they did their business. Now they had the right idea, but they had the wrong place. It wasn't bad for them to try to shoot for convenience for people who were coming to worship. But the place they chose, that was the issue. He's sensitive to the people who were most affected by it, the Gentiles. You see, the business was being done in the court of the Gentiles, the only place the Gentiles could go to worship the God of Israel. So they had to come and pray amidst bleeding sheep, cooing doves, clinking chains, and talkative people. What should have been a prayer room, freely accessible to international seekers, became a shopping mall. And Jesus wouldn't have anything to do with it. He's sensitive to the people who are the most affected by it, and it all provides a reflection on his righteousness. That's what we need to walk away from here with. It's manifested zealously. In fact, such zeal put the learned in mind of a messianic statement about him. I mentioned last week there's something like 456 verses in the Old Testament that could reflect Messiah. Here's one of them. Look at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quote from Psalm sixty-nine, nine, And what it implies is a special relationship Jesus had with God. It is, as it were, a sign, a sign of the advent of Messiah. Jesus' actions are far more than merely the indignation of a Jewish reformer. John makes wise use of the Old Testament, recalling that the witnesses, the disciples, observe something was wise because it would provide a touchstone, a frame of reference for all who knew its teachings. It even provides a touchstone for us today. It illustrates the depth and the riches of the plan of God. A thousand years, keep this now, a thousand years before Jesus upset business in the courts of of the temple, David prefigured what the zeal of Messiah would look like. Zeal for your house will consume me. And those who were learned and knew the Scriptures had a little light go off in their head when Jesus did this. Aha! Messiah. Messiah. Want to see Jesus? Look at His overt actions. Want to know how to respond to Him? Respond the way the earlier disciples did. We need to affirm our own observations about Him as Messiah. We need to first of all decide, is He or isn't He? I mean, come on now. If He's not... Why don't we just go our way? Wouldn't it be a lot easier? Dismiss any notion of devotion to Him. Dismiss any notion of witnessing about Him or adherence to what He said. Why hassle with it? There's a much more convenient way to live life. The Christian life calls for discipline. It calls for living with certain constraints. But not if He's not Messiah. So we need to make up our mind. But if He is Messiah, we need to move under His banner. We we need to make certain that He is Lord of our lives. We need to let His teaching, His promises, His counsel, His directives affect us in how we relate to others. They should affect us in how we conduct our business. They should affect us in how we should set our goals. They should affect us in how we spend our money. They should affect us in how we live morally and ethically in this culture in which we find ourselves. We need to respond in the only way wisdom would have us respond, If He is who He behaved like and others came to see Him as, that's the only reasonable thing we can do. And believe me, there is a need, there is a great need for this kind of followership, even in the church, because anything else falls far short of what Jesus came to establish. Look at His overt actions. Who do they say he was? In my book they say he was Messiah. He alone could perpetrate this scourge in the temple. Not only get by with it, but be absolutely right in doing it. There's a third overt action. And this is not something he did as much as it is something he said. We can see him through the statement he makes. It's an intriguing incident what follows tells the story of Jesus' ability to disclose the future. The incident is the reaction to the messianic observation that some made about him. Verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. It's a question the Jews bring to him, a reaction to what he had just done, one which was prompted not so much by his action in, claiming, in cleansing the temple, but by the status of Messiah that had been given him. Notice carefully Jesus' response. To verse 18. First of all, look at verse 18. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? I mean, look what you're doing in the temple, and look look what's been said about you. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority in doing all of this? And what he tells them tells of his own demise. Destroy this temple. And I'll raise it again in three days. Got their attention. In fact, later on, this statement that Jesus makes would be used against him. And it would be used against his own. At his trial, it's used against him. During his crucifixion, it's used against him. Later, if you look in the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 14, when Stephen is in the process of being martyred, this, again, is thrown up, this this comment that Jesus made, and it's used against the believers. I love irony. You know, irony is an odd twist of fate that changes the game seriously and significantly. And there's some irony in this passage. They themselves, ironically, would be the ones to bring about the sign they had asked for him to produce. They wouldn't recognize it, but they're the ones who would crucify him. What did Jesus say? Destroy this temple. They're the ones who destroyed it. He's talking about his body, that temple. Also, ironically, in killing Jesus, they would provide the one sacrifice for sin that would render obsolete all the sacrifices given in the temple they so highly revered. Isn't that something interesting? More than interesting. It's divine. It's God at work. Jesus' word for temple here denotes the place where, the, where deity dwelled. And remember, he was speaking about himself. And this is just another allusion to his divinity. Recall Jesus elsewhere of himself. He says, something greater than the temple is here. Why does he say this? Because God's presence is more manifest in him than it would be in the temple at any time. And Jesus tells us in this passage of his own resurrection, destroy this temple, me, me and I'll raise it up again in three days. Another allusion to divinity. The Jews, as well as his own disciples, seem to miss this altogether. In fact, we have evidence of them missing it. Jesus talked about his death and resurrection. In Matthew chapter 16, what did Peter do? He took him aside and rebuked him. What did Jesus do? He told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. The disciples at that point just didn't get it. We needn't be too hard on them. There are many things we don't get either. But Jesus' death and resurrection, those separate entities, are inseparably linked. Both are signs of the Messiah and of the salvation He brings. Jesus' comment would eventually mean more to those who heard it. It would mean more to His immediate disciples. Look at verse 22. After He was raised from the dead, His disciples recalled what He had said, Then they believed the Scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They believed the Scripture. Now that could be one Scripture, likely Psalm 1610, where it says, Thou wilt not abandon my soul in Sheol, neither wilt thou allow the Holy One to see the pit. Or it could mean all the Old Testament teaching in general about Him. At any rate, they believed. They fixed their faith more accurately once they learned of the resurrection. And it says they believed the word which Jesus had spoken. Uh, Prior to that time, they probably thought Jesus had spoken figuratively or parabolically, but not after the resurrection. Not after the resurrection. Their experience is none other than a fulfillment of what Jesus meant when he said, The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. It would mean more also to his future disciples. Those who knew him personally in a physical sense. Came to trust in him. Trust in him. And those who would come to trust in him later. They would fix their faith on the fact of his death and resurrection. And you know, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed at all. That's why we add a hearty amen to Paul's summation on the resurrection. And when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Three overt actions. What do we do with them? Well, do you want to see Jesus? Look at the overt actions. Look at what He did. Look at what He said. Include the things He said as a result of what He did. Want to know how to respond to Him? The only logical way to respond to a God who would plan to be destroyed and resurrected on our behalf is to serve and follow him out of gratitude. It's a call we often extend to those who have yet to declare themselves for him, but it's a call we all need to respond to again and again and again in our lives. And I don't mean we get saved all over again, but we reaffirm over and over and over again in our lives, yes, we're yours. Yes, you're God. Yes, you came to die for my sin. Yes, you allowed your, your temple to be destroyed. Yes, you raised again. You, were, you arose from the dead again after three days. Yes, yes, yes to Jesus. Fits well with what we're told in Romans 12, chapter 1. Romans 12, verse 1. Pardon me. Where we're enjoined to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and run with endurance the race that is set before us. Jesus did what he did so that we could see what we could see and surrender our lives to him. Let's do it all over again this morning. Pray with me, would you? Father, we weren't there, all we can do is read of it, but read we will and respond we shall to what you did at that wedding in Cana of Galilee. And we weren't there, and all we can do is read of it, but let us read and respond to what you did in the temple. And again, we weren't there, all we can do is read of it but let us respond appropriately to how you, res- how you responded to the Jews who quizzed you for a sign. What greater sign could we have but that you allowed yourselves to be, yourself to be destroyed, only to be raised again from the dead in three days. We rest our faith on this, Lord. And we pray that you'd help us to follow you. Serve you in Jesus' name. I'm going to do something different this morning.